Page 947. Question 69. Let me ask it and you give the answer. We'll say that together. What is the communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? Answer. The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Then we read in God's word from 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. This is God's holy and infallible word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified." In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God's holy word may bless it to us all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us now. Open our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand the union that we have with Christ and to walk in the reality of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes people lament 
that the Westminster Standards and their treatment of the application of the salvation purchased for us by Christ, that these standards fail to highlight sufficiently the doctrine of union with Christ. Now, you may have never heard that, but I certainly have heard that. Such complainers have apparently ignored the Westminster Larger Catechism, which looks especially, more than the other two documents, which looks at the whole of our Christian lives here and hereafter under the rubric of union and communion with Christ in grace, which is a way of speaking about our communion and union with Him here, and in glory, which speaks of our communion in the world to come. And so tonight we think about that communion that we enjoy in this life what the Larger Catechism calls communion in grace. And what we see in Westminster Larger Catechism 69 and here in 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere makes abundantly clear that union with Christ lays the foundation for our Christian life. There's our theme. Union with Christ lays the foundation for our Christian life. And taking this theme, let's examine these three things. First of all, life outside Christ. Secondly, life in Christ, transformed by the Spirit. And thirdly, the fruits are consequences of such a life, of our union with Christ. So life outside Christ, life in Christ, transformed by the Spirit, and the fruits of such a union. We say then, first of all, life outside of Christ is where those live who've only been born once, who remain fully in the bondage of the sin into which Adam fell, and their own personal sin keeps them. 1 Corinthians 6 is clear that all outside of Christ are unrighteous. This is made clear throughout the chapter. Why? What's going on here? Well, verse 9 tells us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Note here Paul says, do not be deceived. That's interesting, isn't it? Do not be deceived that a life contrary to one's profession will lead to heaven. That's part of what he's saying. Don't be deceived. You can't say, oh, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, but live like the devil. That doesn't work, nor does it work to simply be an unbeliever. So a false profession won't lead to heaven, or simply rejecting him won't lead to heaven. I say to that because we live in a day, don't we, that seems to subscribe to what some have called justification by death. That is, no matter how wicked you are in this life, when you die, you go to heaven. Are you familiar with that? Maybe you've been to some funerals. Where the person, as far as you know, and everybody else, never had a Christian profession, never embraced the Christian faith in any respect. And yet they're spoken of as if they were Paul the Apostle or something like that, who's just died. Um, In fact, I had somebody once, I went to a parishioner's uh, family funeral. It was the funeral of his father. And um, he said, "Uh, Pastor, I tell you, I really wanted to run up there and throw that casket open and see who was in it. Because the way the fellow was talking about my father, he said, that's not the man I knew. And he didn't, he didn't mean good things by that. He meant, this isn't the way this man lived. And so you have this serious word here from Paul. Note the list here in verses 9 and 10. 
Those who live and walk in such sin impenitently show that they are no true children of God and they won't inherit heaven. You see the connection. They're not true children of God. And who inherits the real heirs? They inherit. So false professors don't inherit. I mean, that's talked about in Hebrews, right? Referring back to the Old Testament, referring back to Proverbs and other places. Well, what we have here in 9 and 10 in chapter 6 is a similar catalog of sins to the previous chapter. If you look in chapter 5, in 10 and 11, there's these sins pretty much listed. And of course, really in 5, he's talking about this, this man who has his father's wife. He's talking about in 5 to 7 what true holiness is with respect especially to sexuality and to sexual morality. That's a great concern of the apostle in these chapters. But what you have in the verses here in in chapter 6 in 9 and 10 is a further addition of sexual sins. It mentions, it says adulterers or it could be put fornicators, people who have sexual relations outside of marriage. And then there are two more words listed after that, that the ESV translates by this one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And the two words that that's translating are probably the passive and the more active partners in such such a a situation, perhaps a male prostitute. It's sometimes translated that way for the first. And those seeking such services in the second. And find the list, this list, this catalog of sins describes what you might say are self-centered takers. You think of what Augustine said that characterizes the city of man. He said the city of man is characterized by the love of self to the exclusion of the love of God and the love of neighbor. And that's exactly what we see in this list. Self-centered, self-taking, no giving, no loving of neighbors, but simply those who love their sinful selves. That's what's being described. Paul, in saying such were some of you, is saying that these and like sins marked the Corinthians. And verse 11, God graciously saved you. Such were some of you. We'll talk more about that. But the point here is God saves all sorts, even the worst. He saves all sorts of sinners. This list gives testimony to that. But we are talking about life outside of Christ. While sin, having said what I just did, and having said that sin is not to dominate us, and Paul says, he makes it very clear, he says, all things are lawful for me, I will not be dominated by anything. I'm not going to be dominated by the sin nature, the old nature to which I seek to die, to which I seek to put off, because that's not truly who I am. That's not who I am as a new creation in Christ. And so while sin is not to dominate the life of believers, they may act contrary to that profession, to their profession, and live and act in certain ways like unbelievers. And he gives two main instances in this, uh, in, in this chapter. He, he starts in verses 1 to 8, right, talking about suits, lawsuits that are being brought against fellow believers, And these lawsuits are being brought before the unrighteous. They're going into the civil courts and bringing these lawsuits. And Paul sees this as particularly unseemly. 
Why? Because the saints will judge the unrighteous. The very people that they're going before to have judged the saints, the saints are going to judge them. It says in verse 2 that the saints will judge the world. It says in verse 3, the angels. Talking about fallen angels. When does this happen? At the last day, there is some sense in which we join in the judgment of Christ. As Christ, at His judgment seat at the great white throne, judges, we say yes we will not be there saying, oh, wait a minute, well, 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 this isn't fair. No, no, we, yes, yes, we will be agreeing and sitting in that judgment with him. So since we're going to judge them, why take each other before them for judgment, particularly given that the unbelievers are unqualified to judge us? Can't we rather judge such cases among ourselves, verses 4 and 5, even willing to suffer wrong if necessary, verse 7. Now, I'll say just this. There's a lot we could say about these verses. This, this is not an argument for injustice, okay? And it's not a rejection of civil justice altogether. That's also not what's being said here. It's talking about a certain kind of spirit of, of you know, I'm going to go after you, I'm going to go after you, I'm, go, I'm, I'm keeping a record of wrongs and I'm going to get you all, you know. And Paul says, no, this is not the way we should be with each other. He pleads for forbearance. The saints should forbear with each other. The saints should forbear with each other. We have differences and we can take each other's heads off for the differences that we have. But Paul says... In so many words, stop it. <laughs> Don't do it. Forbear with one another. And here's the second great instance. I said there were two in which believers can act like unbelievers. They can sue each other and go before unbelievers. And verses 12 to 20 give us another instance of believers acting like the unrighteous. Engaging in fornication. Probably cult prostitution. So there were men in Corinth who were converted. They were Christians. And it was the practice of many men in Corinth. There were temples there that had, uh, there were shrines there that had cult prostitutes associated with them. And part of those religions that they had participated in would be engaging, men would go to the temple and engage in this prostitution with these women. And Paul is saying, don't do that. And I want you, here's what I really, here's what I want you to note. You know, what would men of that day say? Probably something like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. I have a family. I love my wife and children. That's, this is a different matter. This meant nothing to me. It meant, she meant nothing to me. You've heard that sort of thing before. No. Paul says all sexuality is reserved for marriage. He's, that's his whole argument through 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. But I want you to note this particularly with respect to our theme of union. Paul says this, which would really have been surprising and astounding and arresting. Even sex with a prostitute creates a bond, verse 16. A union that's to be reserved for marriage. So he says having sex with a prostitute isn't just something that means nothing. It creates a union here. And again, you could imagine men saying like, what are you talking about? I don't even know who that is. A union? He's saying this is how significant and important it is. You're doing something that is reserved for marriage. Marriage, you see, is a little picture of our union with Christ. It's a little picture of this great union that we have with Christ. So 
we're in union with Christ and we must not be in sexual union with those who are not. Believers' union with Christ means that we should not be unequally yoked. Go to the next book in chapter 6 and it talks about that. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't be, in other words, in the closest union and communion with those outside. Those who are the righteous, those who know the Lord, are not to be in this closest union with others who don't because they're in union with Christ. That's his whole implication. Okay. We've been talking about life outside of Christ where we all lived before regeneration and, and, and the effectual call that we saw last time. Thanks be to God that our lives have been transformed as the last part of verse 11 says. By the Spirit of our God who brings us into faith union in and with that greatest name, our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Notice here in verse 11 it says there's that catalog of sin in 9 and 10, and then it says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this washing, this washing speaks of regeneration, which is signified and sealed in our baptism. Obviously, this is a picture of that whereby we have in this washing and this regenerating, we have the forgiveness of sins. This washing is realized in time. Someone may be baptized as an infant, and it's realized in time as that person comes to faith. They come to believe and to repent. And when we come to believe and repent, we come into this faith union with Jesus Christ. Such were some of you means that you were all of these things and more. You were adulterers. You were drunkards. That's what he's saying here. But you're these things no more, regardless of how much you may struggle with sexual sin. These are things in the list. Greediness, drinking excessively, idolatry, Reviling. It's interesting how people pick things out of these lists and they're like, well, that's really a terrible, terrible sin. And then you explain something like reviling is rejecting authority. And they're like, I'll reject any authority I want to. We, we've seen a lot of that lately, haven't we? And you say to somebody, you know, greediness is in the same list with homosexual acts. This is serious stuff. If you're truly His, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, you're part of the invisible church. That's the language used throughout here. You are not whatever identity you may, na- you may have had. You were a drunkard. You were a reviler. You were an adulterer. Now, you're, you're not, that identity is not yours. You have a new identity here and now. Because you have union and communion with Christ. Westminster Larger Catechism 69 says, By virtue of His mediation, that is His living, dying, and perpetually interceding for you, you are, as verses 1 and 2 says, a saint. You see, that's the whole point. It says, you have a grievance against one another. Why do you go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What is the saints? It's the holy ones. It's the ones set apart. How are they set apart? Well, it begins with this washing, with this regeneration. You're set apart. 
And then these saints are going to judge the world. These saints, these holy ones, are his own. That's your identity. That's the identity everybody who truly trusts in Christ has. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church tell us they define a saint in a certain way. They say that's somebody who dies having fulfilled all righteousness sufficient to fill up their sanctification which makes them justified at the point of death. So they go directly to heaven. Do not pass go, do not collect 200. Directly to heaven. But everybody else, if they die in a state of grace, goes to purgatory. You see, and you have to work it out and you'll go to heaven from purgatory. That's the good news, that you can only go to heaven. The bad news is there's no such thing as purgatory. It's heaven or hell when you die. Paul doesn't give a third way, does he? Because there isn't one. Well, you're a saint. You're a holy one. One who will judge the world and one who can judge matters among you. One verses 14 and 15 who is raised in the first resurrection, the new birth, and who will be raised at the last day. You're one who will be raised at the last day in glory. And are now presently, look what it says there in these verses, 14, 15, 16, 17. You're members of Christ. This is another way of speaking of your union. How many ways does Paul have to speak of union with Christ to get it through to us that there's such a thing as this? This is something very real. It's, it's, it's fundamental in Paul. It's absolutely foundational for him. This union whereby we're joined to the Lord, verse 17, is so much the case. We're in union with him so evidently that we're one spirit with him. That's what it says. It's not me saying this, it's the text. Verse 17, we're one spirit with Christ. We're of the same spirit. We know from 1 Corinthians 2, if you go back a few chapters, that we have the spirit of Christ, and because we have the spirit of Christ, we have the mind of Christ. He says that at the end of the chapter. You have the mind of Christ in union with Christ. This is your true identity. You say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying when I sin, when I commit any sin... That is it truly who I am in Christ? Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's alien to who you are as a child of God. If your trust is in Him and you're committed to not be dominated by those things, you want to repent of those things, that's the greatest grief to you. The more serious one is in the Christian life, the more one can see. I, I remember reading this many years ago and I thought, wow, that's something this person was saying. Death is, sin is worse than death. I remember thinking like, well, dude, that's radical. But it is. It is. It really is. Any sin. We don't take sin very seriously oftentimes, but we need to. The apostle did. We're in union with him. We're one spirit with Him. Having the same Holy Spirit so that we can be said, verse 19, to be corporately and personally. Paul speaks in his epistles both that we're corporately 
the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we're personally a temple of the Holy Spirit. All of you who trust in the Lord are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's just another testimony about our union with Him. That means the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, brings Christ's things to you. He ministers to you of Christ. That's what the Spirit does. He takes the things of Christ and applies them to you. We're not our own, verse 19 says, but we've been bought with a price. Do you remember when I was preaching from Isaiah 40 that we looked at Heidelberg Catechism 1? You know that language, don't you? We're bought with a price. We're not our own. Believers can and do far too much. Let me just say this. Believers can and do far too much, live like unbelievers, but they should not and must not. Must not. You're members of Christ. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Something very profound. I was brought up in a church, you know, the whole thing. You would have preached and it says, and that's why you should never let a drop touch your lips or you should never smoke. That's really extremely shallow. And everybody in that church was sitting there going, amen, amen. They weren't drinking or smoking, at least that we knew of. <laughs> and so they felt very righteous. You know, we, liked it. we like it to be like, yeah, yeah, check, check, check. I don't do that. I don't do that. No, no, no. It, it's the hard stuff. It's the stuff of the heart. Do you love the Lord your God, heart, soul, strength, and mind? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, to me, to just say that, I fall woefully short. I fall so woefully short, but that is the desire of my heart as a child of God, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and He's working in me amazingly. All that we are now, as Westminster Larger Catechism 69 says, is due to our union with Him, a work of the Spirit, in and by the means of grace. We now commune with Him by the means by which we come, we come to Him and rest in Him. I was just preaching that again this morning in Wheaton. You've heard it before about Jesus as gentle and lowly, come to me. And he invites us to come to him and rest in him by those means. And that's how we do it. Well, this brings us to our last point. As a result of that union and communion that we have with him, now in grace, we partake of the virtue of his mediation in various fruits or consequences of that union. We could say, to, to categorize it both forensically, I'll say a little bit about what that means, and transformatively. So God works in us in a way that He declares us righteous legally. That's forensically. The forensic is the legal. And He works in us transformatively. As Westminster Larger Catechism 69, as 1 Corinthians 9 to 11 teach. 69 speaks about justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else God does to work in us to manifest that union. And our text here speaks about washing, about sanctification, about justification. Well, Westminster Larger Catechism 69 um, says that the two chief manifestations of the union that we have with Christ is justification and adoption. 
the two chief manifestations in terms of that forensic work. In coming weeks, we'll get into these in details. We're going to talk quite a bit about justification. We'll talk about adoption too, but we're going to talk. There are a number of questions on justification. Just this for now. You were the unrighteous. All of you were unrighteous. At one time, you were outside of God, aliens to His way. Now, you are the righteous, not because you've achieved a perfect righteousness, but because Christ has, in His active and passive obedience, in your place. In your place. And He gives you His righteousness freely as a gift that you receive by faith alone. This is called justification in which God declares you to be righteous for the righteousness of Christ imputed or accounted to you, received by the empty hands of faith. It's what our text is talking about. It's what question 69 is talking about and a lot of the following questions. He further declares you to be not only justified, righteous, but He declares you to be a son. This is something further because a son is a legal heir of all that is His. His riches become ours. And I'm being careful here. You you say son or daughter. I would rather say son or if if, if you're wanting to be clear, I'm not excluding women because I'm not. I'd rather say child because son is used because son particularly in the Bible has the meaning of legal heir. In a, in a way that daughter doesn't necessarily have that. And, and the Bible itself always refers to us as sons of God. Uh, and of course, it's including men and women. It's not excluding women. But there's, there's a reason to use that language, I think, sons of God. And here's the point we said earlier. The unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. We do. So God establishes a relation that ensues from this legal basis of being declared a son, being declared the child of a king, is. And so we receive all these blessings and benefits. We're not only declared righteous as a judgment of the divine court. That's what the forensic means. It's a legal judgment due to our union with Christ. But we're also transformed and made righteous, which is to say what the question says, and what 1 Corinthians 9.11 says, we're sanctified. But again, now I want you to note the verse. Verse 11, such were some of you, now you're God's children, you're saints. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. Notice here, we typically, and it's the case in 69, and it's the case here in the, in the confession, justification precedes sanctification. So you might wonder, why is sanctification being put at this place? Um, It comes before justification in the list, I think, as perhaps one clue, I think there are two clues here, but one clue that Paul may have in mind what John Murray calls definitive sanctification. God's setting us apart definitively at the time of our washing or regeneration. So in other words, when we're, when we're washed, when we come to Christ by faith, when we trust in Him, there is a kind of definitive setting apart that's part of our being saints. We're designated as saints. And Murray speaks of this as definitive sanctification. And it, 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 it precedes justification here, but I think another clue is this, the grammar... 
you know, we always like to say something about the grammar. But I think it is a clue here. All three of these, washed, sanctified, and justified, are aorists, which as a tense tends to be some sort of a definitive or definite action in the past that has this ongoing action. There are different ways to, to think about it. But I think more than that, sanctification and justification here, unlike washing, is in the passive voice. And to say that it's in the passive voice is to say that this sanctification is something done to us. Now, in sanctification that we speak of on the other side of justification, in other words, progressive sanctification that we typically speak about, is dying to sin and living to righteousness. And we're active in that. We're very active in that. We're putting our sin to death. But there's a sense, we're not active in justification in one sense because God declares this. It's a legal declaration of of what Christ has done. His righteousness imputed to us, our sin to Him. There is a real sense of passivity in there. There's, There's more to say about that. But why is sanctification in the passive here? And I think it's pointing to definitive sanctification. I think it's pointing to this, so I think that's what is being pointed out here. But we we talked about this in terms of regeneration last time, that regeneration is not only the beginnings, but Calvin uses the word regeneration like we would use sanctification, the continued inward work. It's the transformative work. The distinction here is between the outward declaration that we have in justification and an adoption, and, you know, these are legal these are legal works, and you might say, but adoption sets up a relationship. Of course it does, but the foundation of it is, is legal. Those of you who are adopted, I adopted uh, our daughter Mary, and we went to court. And, you know, I'll never forget when the judge's gavel came down and he, he declared this. Well, that meant uh, that she was my daughter legally. And it's a, it's a great, it's a joyful thing. And, but there's a legal basis for this. There's a legal relationship, and we have that, but we also have this transformative relationship. But I think we have it here in its definitive sense. At any rate, such will be completed in glorification. But before then, just to finish, note that Westminster Larger Catechism 69 says not only justification, adoption, and sanctification, but whatever else in this life manifests our union with Christ. Thus, our persistence, our perseverance in great tribulation and God sanctifying to us our deepest distress manifests such. Let everything in your life be seen through this lens, through this lens. This trial or blessing is another opportunity to deepen your communion with Christ in blessings, and I I mentioned this in prayer, let blessings draw you to Him in thankfulness. Let trials draw you to Him in dependence in everything. Walk in close communion with our Lord Jesus Christ while we live in His grace in this life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray You would take home to our hearts these sacred lessons. Make us mindful every day that we are Yours. We are Yours by that designation in baptism and our profession of faith and trust in Christ and all that you give to us, that you've washed us, you've sanctified us, you've justified us, you're working in us. Father in heaven, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.